Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we speak with aerospace engineer Eric Becker about the roles and duties of a flight test engineer. We also discuss having the knack, keeping projects on track, and becoming a lumberjack. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 106, Flight Test, April 14th, 2016. So, Carmen, do you ever have to make workplace decisions that leave you a little worried? Uh, yeah, not all the time, but whenever I tape out an eval board for uh, production, uh-huh. you know, there's always something. Did I make the layout as optimal as it could be? Did I add enough test hooks for whatever crazy, you know, validation procedure I'm going to have to run or debug? Um, so just little things you can't know and you'd never get anything done if you spent time fretting all the little details. Mm-hmm. What kind of worry do you get? I mean, is that a sense of, of like kind of a nagging little, you know, something bothering you? Or is this a real deep in the gut, oh, my God, the, the ship is going down worry? No, nothing nothing like the Titanic is sinking. Just a little <laughs> nagging feeling. <laughs> um, so far, I've been I've had a pretty good average uh, success rate. But, uh, you know, one time I did, did forget to hook up five volts to one of the chips on the IC, and that took a few days to debug because it right. it was powered by diodes from then on and worked just enough so I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the downside is, right, that that uh, the only way to be sure that you aren't going to make any mistakes is to not do anything. Exactly. That's why I try to do as little as possible. I have the uh, alarm clock and the <laughs> shelf under my desk like George Costanza, and every day after lunch I just turtle down. Right. Well, you know, as engineers, we often have to make decisions uh when we're not in possession of all information. We can't, we don't have total confidence. And although we try to make rational decisions for ourselves and our organizations, it's not today's status, but it's tomorrow's unknown surprise that may put us in a bind. Uh, so this evening, we're going to talk a little bit about taking risks as an engineer. And to uh, guide us through our discussion, uh, our guest is aerospace engineer Eric Becker, a flight test engineer for the Naval Air Warfare Center in Patuxent River, Maryland. Following a six-year stint with the U.S. Marine Corps, Eric earned an aerospace engineering degree from San Jose State University and has been involved in flight test operations ever since. Eric, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Well, we're so delighted that you could uh, join us uh, for this evening's conversation. So I guess to get started, uh, the first thing we have to ask is, how did you get interested in engineering? Um, Well, it was kind of a long path. My dad was uh, sort of a frustrated engineer i guess you could call it he uh he kind of accidented himself into a math degree while he was uh studying uh, i didn't really know how to uh i guess they didn't have you know career counselors or something at the time so he 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 uh he wound up getting a math degree uh after realizing he took the wrong physics basically and um <laughs> he uh <clears throat> he went to work for IBM and uh he was a programmer back in the late sixties and uh then moved into sales and then moved into management and in uh, nineteen seventy two shortly after I was born 
he decided that IBM probably wasn't going to be the wave of the future, so he became a lumberjack. And, uh, <laughs> a lumberjack? Moved, yeah, that's right. He moved the whole family up to a rural area in Northern California, and uh, that's where I grew up watching him massively over-engineer every piece of gear he ever needed. <laughs> and um, uh, So you guys are the inspiration for Dexter then, at the end. <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> um Yes. Well, oh, I see. Sorry. I thought you were talking about the other Dexter, the uh, Showtime Dexter. Oh, I was. I like, was. Uh, <laughs> he became a lumberjack at the end. Spoilers. Yeah. Oh, see? Great. I never saw wow. it at the end. <laughs> From what I've read, I, you don't want to watch that far, and I haven't either. I, yeah, I stopped after yeah. it was good. <laughs> so anyway, so my dad, uh, he had, he had kind of odd jobs throughout the 80s, basically, including uh, being a uh, sort of building a lot of... Um, uh, equipment for a strawberry farm up there. And then in uh, 1984, I want to say, he got a job in Reno, which is about 90 miles away, doing uh, doing this like whole brand new great thing called AutoCAD. It was like this huge big deal. He was he was he was in at the at a big structural engineering company in uh, in Reno, learning this new computer system. Uh, how to how to do drawings and it was like you know he'd come home at night and he'd be like yeah it's like the drawing board i have except it's it's on a computer it's really you got to come see it you know and, and of course we saw it and we were all blown away by this this super advanced technology um so so most of my growing up life i was if you said engineer i really only thought of a civil engineer really um i wouldn't have even known that there were other kinds of engineers right um, all this from an accidental math degree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, he really, uh, he liked, uh, carpentry and all that kind of stuff. He, uh, he has the, uh, he has the, um, the knack. he wants put a, yeah, he wants put a framing hammer in, uh, in, in the wall of a, of a building, you know, he's got all the kinds of little weird accidents you can have. <laughs> um, uh, so for my part growing up, I was like that, you know, I was always taking stuff apart and, um, I was always annoyed by that later in life. I was always annoyed by the, the Dexter, not the Dexter, the, uh, now you got that in my head, the Dilbert cartoon <laughs> where, where he's putting everything together and it works better. And I'm always like, wow, it's a much better engineer than me. Cause usually it just wound <laughs> up in a lot of pieces. I don't and, know many um, people who ever got it back together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I knew early on that, like, I, I think the, the, the the most successful I was was taking apart my brother's uh, CO2 pistol that was like an old uh, old single action army Colt and I actually got it back together in working condition. I mean his his threats of bodily violence helped, but but I definitely <laughs> I actually got that done when I took apart a uh, clock radio. I was totally lost. I had no idea what I was looking at, and uh, I was I was I woke up late for a week until my dad figured out what I had done. <laughs> but um. Uh, unfortunately I was, I know I, I've, I've been listening to a lot of your episodes and everybody's always like, oh, I was good in math and science. I was a terrible student all the way around. Um, I, I went to a really good high school in Reno at a time when there was a lot of money being pumped into education and I squandered it entirely. I, uh, my two science courses were aviation and astronomy and I did well in both of them, but I didn't take biology or chemistry or any of that. And I think I got out. I think I got away with getting out of high school with geometry. That's as far as I went. Mm -hmm. So college not being uh, much of an option for me, I joined the uh, the Marines, which is really kind of my goal all along anyway. Um, 
<clears throat> and I figured I'd make a career of it. And then about the uh, third day of boot camp, I was like, you know, maybe when I'm done with this first tour, I'll, I'll just go ahead and get out because this is, <laughs> you know. Um, so I did I did six years. Uh, I did uh, mostly I was infantry. So uh, I spent a lot of time riding around in helicopters. And I became kind of fascinated with them. So like at 18, you know, my first ride was in a big CH-53E helicopter and it was just like the strangest thing i'd ever experienced this thing it didn't go zipping down a runway and then slowly climb it just the ground just lifted underneath you and uh mm -hmm. it was just fascinating and that smell that helicopter smell um so uh that's a super stallion correct that's correct super stallion. And for the um, listeners at home who may not know much about this stuff you know you see a Blackhawk sitting on the tarmac and it looks big until you see it sitting next to a super stallion. And then it's like a, it's like a subcompact car sitting next to a semi truck yeah. or, or see a, uh, a Blackhawk being carried by a super yeah, stallion. It's, you know? it's a giant <laughs> helicopter. It's, it's a very large helicopter. Uh, yeah. And, and it, uh, it lets you know when it shows up, it's got a real presence to it. Um, I'm lucky enough to see them come in at work every once in a while. Oh, neat. Um, so yeah, so uh, I got out in 1996, and at the time, the uh, the 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 VA had a really interesting program that was part of your checkout process when you're within six months of separation. They actually did um, some really some really excellent career counseling uh, and involved a battery of tests, something like the CBAT or something like that. California basic aptitude test, I think is what it is. I may be, I may have that wrong, but anyway, you take this battery of tests, takes about two days and then, um, and then a career counselor, a professional career counselor sits down with you and talks to you about your options. And, um, he, he looked at my test scores and he said, you know, you'd probably do well in a technical field. Um, it went through, they basically, it gives you a list, like it gives you three columns. It's really a great test. I, I, I wish it was around more. I'd like to see people take this kind of test, you know. Um, it gives you three columns. One is whether you have an aptitude for it. The next column is whether you have an interest in it. And the next column is whether it, it matches your values, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had, in science and technology, I had like the the big, you know, the three uh, the three cherries basically. So So I looked into it and he gave me this really this advice that turned me into a bit of an obsessive. He said, he said, you know, engineering programs are based on a really rigid set of, of prerequisites. So you've got to plan your, you got to plan it well. And, and being a former infantryman, I planning is like an obsession, right? So I used to spend hours poring over, you know, over college catalogs well before I needed those courses to see what I needed to do, you know? So it's also an right. optimization problem. So it's a good engineering test too. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I mean, I, I can say that I never had any issues. I had friends who had issues who were like, oh, no, I've got, I got another, I, I missed this semester. I didn't take this course. You know, it, it did happen. And, and at the time there were some, uh, you know, ABET does their little, um, they do their audit every once in a while. And one of the things that, that the school I went to had gotten hit on was not rigidly enforcing the prerequisites enough so they were it was it was a dead serious time i was going through so it was really fortunate that it worked out that way um but a little part of me still really loved science and astronomy and stuff like that so so i still kind of thought maybe i'd study <clears throat> you know astronomy um and uh 
I think uh, I went I went back to school and but I still had a science background, right? So I went to a, a junior college in Northern California, and I'll, I'll never forget she had us. They had us put together this whole list of the courses we were going to take, and I laid it I laid it out, and I was taking algebra one all the way through differential equations, mm-hmm. and the um, over about a four year period, and um, and the counselor looked down at the sheet, looked at it, she'd known me for a grand total of about seven seconds and she said eh, this is too much uh you should probably pick a different major and i, and I just kind of said no nah, you don't know me and and i i went and I, I still would like to go back and find her because it's one thing i mean i'm an ex-marine standing there i know what i want to do and i'm going to go do it but you know right. that those kinds of words could really that could have a big impact on somebody who's maybe not so sure who could possibly go on to do great things. So it's, it's just really kind of rankled me ever since. And I kind of wish I'd said more, but you know, end of the day, uh, that was it. So I started studying. I mean, algebra all the way to Diffy Q in four years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I get why she said that was too much, but maybe she could have worded it a little better. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, take a, you know, ask me my name, something, do something to, you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe figure get to out know who's... you first. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, anyway, one of the courses I took was a one-unit um, engineering course, uh, intro to engineering course, and um, and we we wound up having to build uh, uh, a pair of shoes that would allow us to walk across the um, the pool at school there, and um, that really hooked me. I mean, that was the end of it. I I was. I was taking a little bit of math here and there. I was taking some chemistry. I was doing all that. I was interested in the science, you know, but then building something and, and from, from having it in my head to watching my partner walk uh, backwards, unfortunately, because for some reason we couldn't figure out how to get her to move forward with the shoes, but still she made it all the way across. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, that was it. And, um, I guess that's my sort of longish story. Um, nice. I, never I studied aerospace. What's that? I was going to say, I never got to do the walk across the pool test. I built a bunch of spaghetti bridges. Yeah, you know, they what they would do is they would rotate it, I guess. So they would do the the whole egg drop. You get some paper and some string, and you have to be able to drop it off the engineering building. And there was one other one. I don't remember what it was. But, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it just seemed like um, every everything I did engineering-related in high school was always like, oh, let's do a spaghetti bridge. But I got good at that. The key, the key is not to cook the spaghetti. <laughs> you wind up with a master's degree in spaghetti bridgery. Pretty much, yeah. You get That's a long funny. enough noodle, I'll build you a suspension bridge. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> right. So, Eric, once you got through uh, – I, I, so, I, as I understand the story, you're you're in junior college when you took this intro to uh, yeah. engineering course. That's right. And uh, so that got you hooked. Where did Where did that take you? Um, that took me right into the engineering program, and uh, it was taught by a uh, uh, mostly was engineering. It, was it at the same school? Uh, yeah, it was uh, West Valley College in uh, uh, in Saratoga, California. And okay. the, um, the the guy who ran the engineering department there, who taught most of the courses, was a retired Lockheed engineer. And um, and I'll tell you, this is a theme throughout all my education. There were a lot of. Uh, there was just a lot of it's Silicon Valley. It's very nice. There's a lot of engineers with uh, PhDs, and they like to teach. So pretty much, I had a, had a really uh, between between West Valley and San Jose State later, had a lot of adjunct professors who were active, working engineers with advanced degrees, almost always PhDs, teaching the courses, which really really went a long way. Um, yeah. 
so yeah, I took uh, I took a, a couple year course through uh, West Valley, and I actually took some courses that I don't think they even teach anymore. Even though I'm fairly new to the profession, uh, like I took descriptive geometry, and um, you know, I learned how to I learned how to draw on a on a drawing board, and we only got to CAD a little bit late in the in the course. You know, some stuff like that that really the visual side of things really helped me a lot. Was it using and, um, like a Jeff probably knows this more than I do, but like actually using stencils to yeah uh, to uh, build complex shapes. Yeah, we had so you mean you're talking about the descriptive yeah. geometry. Uh, yeah, it was it was a little bit of that, but a lot of it was just it's hard to describe. It's like here's a uh, here's here's part of a of a surface, and then here's something else intersecting it, and you have to draw the intersection. Mm. And a, and a really, I mean, a really simple example of that is if you have two pipes intersecting in a network, if they intersect at a right angle, you get like a nice circular intersection. But if they intersect at a, at any, any other angle, you get like an ellipse basically. Right. But, but this was much more than that. And we did, we did some like how you, how you make uh, cuts in a road, uh, you know, to make it, to build a road, right. how you do cuts through a mountain and things like that. So. You know, uh, nothing I've ever used in my professional life, but, <laughs> but, but definitely like a really cool class that's helped me with my, uh, my visual, uh, uh, yeah, your spatial visualization. Yeah, exactly. So now I can back my truck up a little easier than I probably could have before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Better than a poetry prerequisite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when I've been doing my own drafting, I've been known to make sure the pipes do intersect at right angles. So I don't have to draw it, <laughs> not intersect at right, right. angles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know why we're intersecting pipes, but you know, I mean, well, you know, pedo, uh, you can, you can do uh pedo tubes, do those kinds of things, I guess. So. Right. Right. So when, when did the transition between West Valley and San Jose state occur? Uh, right at the beginning of my junior year. So I took, uh, I took my entire, uh, lower division coursework, um, to include the last semester, I was at three different colleges, taking 20 units, you know, driving, <laughs> you know, driving like across town in Bay area traffic. And the, you know, I'd take like, two classes at, at one of the schools on a Tuesday, Thursday, and then I'd drive across all the way across to take a material science. And then I'd drive back to another college to take circuits, which it, it got a little old, but you know, I mean, you know, it's the price you pay, right? You really wanted this degree. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, <clears throat> people say the military motivates you, but what it really motivated me to was not to live a life of poverty and, and hard labor <laughs> basically. So, right. You know, I had a I had a goal in mind. I got out of the Marines at 24, and I had a goal to graduate by 30. So that was my, you know, and, and I did it, but barely. <laughs> that's all right. That's that's remains very impressive. So I got to San Jose State, and uh, I actually transferred in as a mechanical engineering major. And um, all the courses the first semester were were common between aerospace and, and and mechanical. And I always I was always curious about aerospace. I was always thinking about it. And then uh, in my fluid mechanics class, the guy teaching it was a aerodynamics professor, and several of the of the of the kids in the class, kids, uh, other people in the class were uh, sure. were aeros. <clears throat> so they invited me to the. Uh, AIAA clubhouse and I went in there and started talking to them and and I think a day or two later I I filed a petition to change my major mm -hmm. and um and it's been uh it's been aerospace ever since and you know there have been times that I've been like ah, I really wish I'd had that more broad degree you know but uh, you know I'm real happy with with what's happened and I always I love 
I've always thought of myself as an aeronautical engineer. The degree is aerospace, and I did have some space courses, but I focused totally on aircraft, and that's what I've worked. So, Right. Well, now, I, since you did go to San Jose State, I have to ask, we had a couple of episodes back, we had uh, civil engineer Mike O'Connor on the podcast, and he was explaining that his adventures at San Jose State, uh, he was he was in classes where they would they would immediately go from thirty down to about ten as the, <laughs> as the professor berated them to get them to drop the class and and uh, he was saying he had people in the course that were taking it for the seventh eighth ninth time trying to pass the one course so wow I, I, I'm I'm guessing that perhaps the uh, brutality of the of the uh, coursework had dropped a little bit by the time you got there. Uh, I, I hope so. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know a lot. Times to pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. You know, we had, a um, uh, the, 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 the year I took thermo, we had a guy drop, you know, cause you needed a, for aero and mechanicals, you need a, you needed a C minus, you needed better than a C minus. And I think half that class failed mm-hmm. and had to retake it. Um, and we had the aero program had a weed out course, which was, uh, rigid body dynamics. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it's a weed out course that you take your senior year. So it's <laughs> oh, pretty late in yeah, the process. It's not right? really weeding out then. That's killing yeah. the tree. <laughs> but, uh, and that, you know, that professor, uh, who was one of the adjunct professors at, at one point, he was really funny. We, uh, I grew to really like him and I took another course with him. Um, he, uh, he once wrote up on the whiteboard, uh, learning is suffering. And, uh, he, he, uh, <laughs> He, he used to say, like, whenever people would ask questions in class, he'd hold up the book, which is this classic uh, Principles of Dynamics by Greenwood. He'd hold it up and he'd say, what have I told you? What did I tell you on the syllabus? Read the book. The class is hard. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was all of his advice. But he was, he was actually a really uh, an excellent professor. But that, that was a, a rough it was a rough class. <laughs> at least he, at least he was honest about it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he didn't, he didn't pull any punches. He told you you had to be there to learn and, you know. Didn't have much sympathy for you if you weren't, I guess. Yeah. So now during the uh, this this fairly brief period, I guess your junior senior year, you had in uh, aerospace engineering. Did you have a chance to focus on anything? Was there, you know, were you were you focused on the controls, or the dynamics, or the propulsion, or were you yeah. just a general aerospace degree? So, uh, so they, they, they pushed to make sure that you get a general degree. Um, and at the time I wasn't sure whether that was good or not. I'm actually very happy it is because I think they understood that when you get your first job, that's where you really start, uh, you're really going to start focusing there. Um, but they did offer concentrations. Um, I managed to, I managed to kind of finagle my, um, my, uh, my technical elective so that I wound up with a concentration in aeropropulsion and in dynamics control. And then your senior design is either a space design or, a, or an aircraft design. So I went the aircraft route. So, you know, in my mind, I was going to be, um, I was going to be the, uh, the next great aircraft dynamicist. Uh, turns out most of those equations have been solved already. So, <laughs> you know, turns out they know how airplanes fly now. So, so I did the next best thing and I got, uh, I got into flight test, um, which has been, which is not probably, I don't know if I even really knew that it was a thing. I kind of knew, but, uh, I, I can't imagine doing anything else at this point. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to the flight test in just a minute, but I have sure. to ask. So for a guy that str- didn't think he had strengths in mathematics, uh, you know, getting through geometry in high school, you have now put yourself through a degree in 
here in college where you're doing, you know, aero propulsion and aircraft design. These are not easy things to, to do the computations for. So you, did you have the ability all along or did you just the drive to, to learn, uh, sort of create the ability? How do you, how do you explain going from not being strong in math, uh, to having a real strength there? Well, um, I mean, you know, my dad was a math, you know, had a math degree, um, and he, he enjoyed it almost, almost at a hobby level. So I guess, I guess some of it, I absorbed some of it. I guess I had Mm -hmm. some level of natural ability, but, but honestly, it was just a lot of work. Um, I, you know, I got, I was lucky enough to, to get most of my, uh, most of my, uh, stupid young aggression out while I was in the Marines. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I was able to basically, I mean, I worked, I worked for my brother probably 20 to 30 hours a week while I was in college. Um, but you know, Saturday night, Sunday night, uh, all day, Saturday, Sunday, most nights I was, I was in my room just knocking out problem sets. I had a whiteboard on my, on my wall. Um, and, uh, I would, I would work my way through the problems. And if I got so hopelessly stuck, I would leave it there. And sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night with the answer and I'd scribble it there and fall back asleep. And I'd wake up in the morning and, you know, sleep, Eric answered the, answered the question for me. So did you ever wake <laughs> up and have it just be like hieroglyphics and you're like, what the yeah. hell did I write? <laughs> yeah. A couple times, you know, like that, uh, Seinfeld episode where he's got that, oh, the, know, he writes that note the perfect and it doesn't make any sense. Napkin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kind of like that. You come up and I'm like, wow, I, you know, I'd wake up sometimes and usually it was, be, I woke up thinking, yeah, I solved it in the middle of the night and I'd look at it and be like, nah, no, nah, that's just, that's just gibberish and that's not even English. So <laughs> good stuff. Um, but yeah, I think being able to really just, to just recognize that it was a time to just put my head down and, and push through it was, was what got me through it. Right. And luckily I haven't really needed math since then. So, you know, that's good, right? Yeah, math, <laughs> math is for losers anyways. <laughs> Stay in school, kids. Basically. <laughs> right. So, so out of college, you, you, your first job was as a uh, test flight engineer? Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> like a lot of people, I graduated in 2002. So a lot of us were struggling to find work. I, um, it took me, I graduated in May, took me until um, right after July 4th to even get an interview. And that was just because I went and, and asked the department chair if he knew of any openings. And he sent me to a to a company in the Bay Area to do uh, machine design. There's some company that basically moved uh the wafers from one part of the process to the next and and uh it seemed interesting uh i got home from the interview that day and i had an email from uh from a uh, a group that i had applied to during a career fair called navair i didn't know what it was but they wanted me to come out to uh, uh maryland and do an interview and um and on the strength of the email offering me an interview i i i I basically turned down even the opportunity for a job at that company, which was, uh, could have been a stupid move. <laughs> um, but th- just the timing, it turned out okay for you. Yeah, it turned out great. Um, I came out and, um, Navair, it turns out is what the, how the Navy, uh, how the Navy basically shortens the Naval air systems command. And, uh, it's a very large organization. Um, part of it being, uh, Knock AD, which is the Naval Air Warfare Center aircraft division here at Pax River. Um, 
So I came out, interviewed, uh, had about three or four different interviews, but there was one job that was really clearly, it was clear that the hiring manager wanted me and it was clear that this was the job I wanted. And it was basically doing, um, uh, at the time it was called aeromechanics and controls flight test. And he had several groups uh, basically spread out across all the aircraft that the Navy operates. Um, uh, one of the days uh, we went out and we were, we were getting uh, tours. And one of the tours was of this, uh, this hangar that had some helicopters in it. It was a new Huey and a new Cobra. And I walked into that hangar and uh, I just I smelled that helicopter smell that I hadn't smelled since 94 since when I was on ship. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and it just like it was just it was just in my bones, you know. And I guess apparently uh, the people who were taking us on the tour saw it too, because when I actually did finally hire in, I went to that program, and the guy who was my boss said that I lit up like a like a like a firework or something <laughs> when I saw that thing. So so I got uh, I got my wish, and I wound up working um, on a on a development program for the Hueys and the Cobras, um, and uh, yeah, as a, as a flight test engineer. Um, so I guess that that begs the question: What exactly does a flight engineer? Sorry, what exactly does a flight test engineer do? Um, uh, anything and everything to get to get data to show that an aircraft is 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 meeting its uh, its requirements, basically, right? So mm-hmm. you need your helicopter license to do it. No, no, you're not a pilot. Um, we, we have test pilots, and the test pilots uh, go through generally in in. Uh, in the United States uh, and in the military, they go through the U.S. Navy Test Pilot School here at Pax River uh, because they have the rotary wing curriculum. Um, the Air Force has one at Edwards Air Force Base, but they they send their helicopter test pilots here uh, because they don't have a. Um, there's an exchange program. People go to different services. The Army does their their uh, sends their people here as well. Cool. Um, so no. Uh, Did you go up with the test pilot? To it. Did you go up with the test pilots at all for certain tests once, you know, you knew the thing would fly? I didn't on that program, and I was only on that program for a year. Uh, later in my career, I flew during test flights on uh, different platforms, but uh, not not during that program. Um, uh, I Basically, in that program, I was, an, I was a new guy, and my job was to write what we call flight cards, which have each card has basically a maneuver on it and the conditions needed to set up for that maneuver. And then uh, I would go into the um, telemetry room while we were flying, and they'd talk on the radio, and I'd write down everything I heard. And it was, it was, uh, it was about a year of six-day weeks of just, you know, just, humping just just getting flights off trying to get trying to get all of the all the data that we could um basically you get a test plan in those days as a new guy you get the test plan you start figuring out how to schedule it uh you go and you basically carry everybody's binder around and you learn and you you know and you make sure that the aircraft is configured for the next day that may include ballasting the aircraft because a lot of developmental flight test involves specific configurations, whether it's a heavy forward or a, a light forward or light aft, you know, where you're, you're looking for vibes or you're looking for, um, you know, you're looking for uh, uh, different kinds of loads, different loads on the um, on the shaft, those kinds of things, you know. Mm-hmm. So would you also then rig up like the, you know, strain gauges or 
any sort of electrical sensor needed during flight? No, uh, we usually, uh, so we have, we have a, a group, almost any flight test organization has a group uh, referred to as instrumentation and that's their job is to make sure that the, so basically as a flight test engineer, you know, probably the most valuable course, if I'd uh, actually known it at the time, I would have paid more attention in my experimental methods course, but that's it. You know, you basically, you sit down and you, you figure out what you need to know uh, you figure out how you're going to know it. <laughs> you figure out what you're going to do with it when you get it. And, and that becomes part of your measurement plan. And then you go and you work with the instrumentation engineer and, and you have to, you know, you have to worry about all kinds of aliasing and, and things like that. You have to know the frequencies of interest, the structural frequencies so that you don't, you don't get bad data. Um, so you do have to know a lot of those things, but you don't have to you don't have to solve the problem. Uh, you just have to get it, and then you have to make sure that the implementation will meet your needs, and then uh, and then you take that data. And sometimes that data is telemeter telemeter down because you might have um, you might have limits. You know, you might have a load limit somewhere. So when you're flying, somebody's monitoring that that piece of uh, uh, of, uh, of instrumentation to see how close they get. Uh, mm -hmm. And if they get close, you knock it off. If they get if they go over it and you knock it off and you come home, you know, um, I don't know. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was a great overview. So, so who determines what the right configuration is? Uh, well, uh, the person who writes the test plan, a lot of this is based on, on historical understanding of, of helicopters. Right. So, so, I guess I guess a <clears throat> a smart aleck answer is Igor Sikorsky determines it right because he invented <laughs> he invented it and then uh, you go out there and and then everybody after that starts finding things but but basically uh, historically you start to learn that you know this type of configuration will give you your highest level of uh, structural vibrations and and in a helicopter vibrations are are of of a, they're very important. Um, or you know this one gives you the the most uh, the most trouble during a rolling pullout or or whatever. But but basically to to expand the envelope you have to start in the middle of it and slowly work your way out. And that's usually the structural envelope. So that's that's more that's a lot of it too. You want to be able to get a statistically meaningful number of of points all around the the envelope because what you don't want to do you know what you don't want to do is give an aircraft to a fleet operator and have them doing envelope expansion, having them flying the aircraft into regions that you didn't explore as a, as a tester. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of is, you know, as, as a college graduate or fresh college graduate is, is the job early on more project engineer. They're telling you what needs to be done and you're overseeing that that gets done. And then you sort of graduate upwards to the point where you're telling other people, yeah, what configurations we want to put things into. Yeah, that's right. So if you if you take my career full circle back to where I am now, back in the same group, I'm writing test plans and I'm I'm making those determinations. Okay, so so it's it, it works about the in, in my world, you know, machine design. You start being you know doing the drawings and making sure the right parts are ordered, and eventually you work your way up to actually getting to design machinery. Yeah, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Well, so you were in the you were in this position. Uh, you said for about a year, I think. Yeah, for about so, a year. So, um, what, what came after that? Uh, well, uh, there were some personal issues I had, and I was living in Maryland. I was far away from home, and I had some other kind of things going on. I had a 
I wanted to get back to to the West Coast, mm-hmm. and um, I'd also I got I, lumberjack I, calling your dad did. <laughs> <laughs> the, no, the but that was lumber, laying unused and dulled in the garage and couldn't. Have no, it Carmen, but that but that lumberjack comes back later in the story. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I moved. I, I basically. I guess I was on, I kind of had a couple of groups back in California sort of on blast. I was sending emails out. I wasn't, I mean, I'm sorry, sending out resumes, um, <clears throat> which is kind of weird because I had a great job and I enjoyed it. It was just, it was the location more than anything else. And I was even considering going to grad school. Um, I'd been offered a, an assistantship at a school in Virginia. Um, and I was just about to take it. And I came back from a test one day and I saw a light on my, uh, on my phone, I picked it up, and it was um, it was human resources from uh, Dryden Flight Research Center at uh, in NASA uh, uh, organization at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, and uh, they set up an interview for me, and uh, I interviewed and got offered a job as a flight systems engineer. And in uh, August of um, of 2003, I moved back to California, out to the Mojave Desert. And uh, I was there for about 12 years doing a lot of different jobs before I came back. Flight test engineering for space shuttles has got to be easy. There's no uh, zero G <laughs> in space, so there's no stress, no strain. Go for it. Yeah, you know, they. I mean, they really did do a lot of flight tests on those things, oh, I'm uh, sure for, including dropping them off the off the. Um, uh, one of the one of the uh, test pilots that I worked with, and uh, later on at uh, at. Uh, at uh, at Dryden had flown, you know, the first one of the first shuttle missions as a because he was a test pilot and an astronaut basically. So the kind of culmination of the career to fly be the first guy to fly the you know fly the space shuttle back to up to into orbit and back. Yeah, overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I went. I, I wound up in flight systems, and it was my first desk job ever in my entire life. Um, I was working on AutoCAD, which was a much, much scaled down version of what my dad had. None of the peripherals, everything was drop and click and it was kind of easy. And, and, uh, I was building enclosures for electronic devices and learning the nightmare that is developing software for, uh, for aerospace purposes. Uh, DO-178B. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sounds like alphabet soup to be. Well, basically, uh. Lesson to our software engineers listening: If you want to hate being a software engineer, find out if find someone somewhere to do DO one seventy eight B. He's not lying, but you know, it's so <laughs> you know, it's funny that you that you bring that up because uh, you know my entire exposure to software has been for aerospace. So every once in a while, I'll be talking to somebody outside the field, and they'll mention something like, "Oh, we just fixed that in software," and I'm like. <laughs> What? You know, like <laughs> that just sounds terrible. Why would you do all that work? And then you find out it's not as much work in, in some of the other fields as it is in, uh, in aerospace. Yeah, you, you'll actually do hardware changes so you don't have to change the software. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've done it myself. It's easier to do hardware requalification than software requal. Yeah, that's true. So speaking of hardware qualification, that was part of what I did in, in that job too was, uh, we would, we would, uh, we would have to make, you know, uh, we might we might make a uh, a piece of specialized instrumentation, and then we'd have to take it through the uh, shake table and the and the temp altitude chamber and those kinds of things. The, the house of horrors gun. to make sure. 
What's that? You guys have a lightning gun to shoot at it we, too? We did not. No, uh, we didn't. We didn't do that much because all of our stuff was like one off. So we didn't. Oh, we weren't okay. worrying about operating it. And we would just you just restrict the aircraft to not fly in lightning. So it's, <laughs> so it's more. Rewrite the spec. It's more of a safety of flight uh, test regime, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, uh, Mill standard eight ten or DO one sixty kind of stuff. Very cool. We had our own. We had our own spec. I actually had to write that spec. So one of my last jobs I did was was rewriting the the local spec, which actually, believe it or not, came out of uh, <clears throat> came out the 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 local NASA spec came out of the uh, the X fifteen that crashed that they walked away from the one that broke the spine. There was a, there was a piece of equipment on the wing that was basically winding up because it hadn't, it couldn't survive the, uh, uh, the environment started doing some weird stuff and induced some vibrations, I guess was the short version of the story I heard, which is probably wrong. There's probably somebody right now running for their, for their Wikipedia page going, no, 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 that's not how it worked. But you know, <laughs> you wrote the specs. So what you say goes, <laughs> the X-15 was in a rocket plane, right? So Correct. once you start that thing, it's kind of difficult to stop. Uh, I think it was liquid. I don't think it was a. Uh, <clears throat> I think that the shuttle uh, um, was the first man-rated uh, solid rocket booster. But I could be wrong. I'm not a. I'm not a space guy. Yeah. No, that sounds about right. So now, at some point while you were out at NASA, you moved from being a flight systems engineer to being a operations engineer. Right. So. And, um, and so uh, I guess. Uh, Along with how you move from one position to the other, you have to tell us exactly what it is that an operations engineer does. Sure, sure. So <clears throat> I was actually in the middle of some training to become a software manager. <clears throat> it, was, it was in my wow. second week of, of testing. I was doing uh, – I had done uh, – of testing, of, of training. I, uh, one was um, – uh, one of the courses was software testing and the second course was software engineering. And I was I was sitting at my desk eating a sandwich just – contemplating the universe and <laughs> you know whether maybe this was a good time to be a lumberjack and um <laughs> and an email came in saying that they were hiring internally for operations engineers and i was like sold so i i uh, i i <laughs> applied to it work. no it didn't <clears throat> i applied to it now an operations engineer uh, a couple episodes back several episodes back i don't know in the timeline you had you had a uh a young engineer on who either worked with FAA DERs or was a DER, yep. but uh, I don't know if you remember that discussion. But I, I um, do. I'm I'm struggling to remember the engineer's name, but it'll come to me in a minute here. Sure. Uh, doesn't so a DER is a designated engineering representative. They work with the FAA to determine uh, airworthiness uh, for for modifications. So at at NASA, we we flew uh, public use airplanes. So we had a a self certification process. Um, and the, the, the ops engineers sort of, they sort of partially, they work as an aircraft manager. So like I would, I would have an aircraft that I worked on, um, <clears throat> at first it was an F-18 and then later it was a 747. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you, you are responsible for ensuring that modifications, non, non-maintenance, non-standard modifications, of the airplane meet the airworthiness standards. Uh, you're responsible for managing the workflow on the aircraft, and then when it comes time to test, you you are the you're the mission controller. You're the person who works between the test conductor in the control room, who works with the engineers and the pilot. Or sometimes you're on the aircraft during the testing, either one. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, the safe conduct of test, um, that kind of thing. So so it's sort of a 
it's it's a plateful um and it can be it can be overwhelming but it can also be incredibly rewarding neat neat and so and so what was what kind of things did you get find yourself involved in as an operations engineer so when i jumped ship i had already been working on a uh <clears throat> on on the um on the on the modification side as a systems engineer for a project that was uh uh, trying to demonstrate uh, hands-off aerial refueling um, with a hose and drogue system, the Navy style. <clears throat> uh, so I were I moved over, and it just happened that as I was moving over, the operations engineer on that aircraft was leaving, going to uh, Johnson Space Center. So before I knew it, uh, as a brand new ops engineer, I was basically in charge of the aircraft and the mod, <laughs> and and the testing. So that was a quick 15-month program, and uh, in the end, on uh, August 30th of 2006, we actually successfully plugged without pilot intervention. It was a uh, we had a specialized F-18 that we used that had uh, um, basically had a shell around it that allowed you to put your own control laws into it, and the aircraft drove itself right into the basket. And it was it was a sight to be seen because a lot of us, even on the project, weren't sure we were going to do it. It just seemed too outlandish and uh and it worked and i mean the real you know the real the real geniuses behind it were the the, the guys who developed the system at uh, sierra nevada corp but but it was our our airplane and our mod and and our pilots and and our tests that we conducted so so when you say a lot of people weren't convinced things were going to go well what would have happened had things not gone well oh we just would have missed uh we we had we well <laughs> Uh, okay, it, there's an incredible amount of hubris to say that we had engineered out all of the risk, right? Uh, I mean, it's not possible, but we we had we had uh, we had a lot of mitigations in place to ensure that um, that you know that that at worst it would just fly right by the basket or not see it and not try to close with it or or any gotcha. number of things. And the pilot always had the ability. So there's a pilot sitting there. Uh, it's a two seat aircraft, uh, F-18. Uh, gotcha. Pilot in front, his job was entirely safety. He, he drove the airplane. He owned it. In the back, there was a system with a flight test engineer in it, and he he drove the system. So he had control of that, which was basically like push a button to close, push a button to pull back, whatever. And uh, and the pilot was watching it. And the pilot, of course, was an experienced uh, F-18 pilot with aerial refueling experience, and he was able at any minute to grab the stick and just pull away. Wow. Or or describe the back of the KC one thirty five. Well, you're you're up close anyway. I mean that that yeah. that thing's only a couple, maybe one hundred and fifty feet long, right? That hose. So interesting. And Sierra Nevada Corp. That's a group that's doing the uh, uh, orbital space plane, correct? Dream Chaser. Yeah, that's right. Dream Chaser. Yeah, they have some really yeah. brilliant controls guys up there. There's some really brilliant everything up there. It's a good group. Um. So then, uh, after that, I uh, I was lucky enough to take a short course at the National Test Pilot School on aircraft um, handling qualities and performance, uh, which involved a little bit of flying on my own. And then I got I got shipped off to Waco, Texas, to revive a program on the operations side called uh, Stratospheric Observatory for infrared and sorry for infrared astronomy. Sophia, as we call it, which is a mm-hmm. 747 with a telescope, a 100-inch infrared telescope in the back of it, which mm-hmm. is a, another outlandish proposal. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, uh, 
you know, it, this program, this is the third, um, airborne infrared telescope that, that NASA's operated. And it was, it was, when it was proposed in the eighties, it was going to be the flagship and it was this big, beautiful program. And unfortunately, a lot of fairly predictable government bureaucracy and infighting got in the way and it, and it languished for a very long time. And it had been, uh, flown for some baseline flight tests with no modification sometime in the late 90s, 97, I think. And then they put it down and they started modifying it, which included putting a big telescope in it. Um, Doesn't a big portion of the hull open up too? That's correct, yeah, in the, in the uh, aft of the wing. So basically right at the, the trailing edge of the wing, there's a new aft pressure bulkhead in it and there's a uh, there's a big spherical bearing in the in the um, the the telescope sits on there and, and balances on it like a giant dumbbell. Um, and, uh, and it, it, uh, it's, uh, I, I sent you a, a, a link to the, at least one of the pages, but yeah, you should put in the show notes. It's a pretty incredible program. We, if people we aren't will definitely do that. Um, so our job really, my job really at the time was to figure out, cause there was a heavy maintenance visit, meaning basically a big 10 year overhaul going on on the aircraft at the same time as the, uh, the mod. So, there were about six or seven of us on this team and our job was out there to just basically pour through 10 years of records, including DER and uh, DAR records and determine what was, what was good to go on the airplane. What was a no go on the airplane needed to be fixed. What needed to be looked at before we could make any call and get the thing flying. And, um, and was this a old civilian? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, and by civilian, was it carrying people or cargo? It was carrying people. It was a, it was a, is a 747 SP special purpose. So it's a, it's a classic 747 with um, a pretty big chunk of the fuselage basically removed. Basically, it wasn't, it wasn't like they took one and cut it. It was built this way. Gotcha. So the fuselage is actually a little, a few feet shorter than the wingspan. And the goal of this airplane, I think it was originally built uh, for like the, LAX to Tokyo in one hop kind of mm-hmm. flight. And uh, so it was designed to take off at uh, somewhere near somewhere near 700,000 pounds and uh, climb to 25,000 feet and then cruise climb up to as high as 40 and, and burn all its fuel and then basically do the descent and land in Tokyo. And uh, there were about 45 of them built, I think. So this one was uh, Clipper Lindbergh when it was operated by, uh, <clears throat> by Pan Am. And then it was later bought by uh, United, and then uh, and then um, it was sent to a boneyard, and NASA picked it up. Old airplane. <laughs> I was always looking to save a dollar. Yeah, you know, and you know, typical. It was, it was, you know, my uh, my chief of maintenance used to when when people would complain about how expensive it was to maintain it, his his response was always, "I'm not the one who picked a 747 SP." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's an excellent airplane, and 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 it flies beautifully. I mean, if if anybody out there has ever experienced bringing an airplane back back to life from after several years of not flying, it was. It was remarkable how well it behaved, and like all airplanes, the the more they fly, the the happier they are. So when you fly it after a while, after a long time down, it takes some takes some getting used to it, and then it just starts humming like a like a Swiss watch, you know. I mean, it, do you have to go flight system by flight system 
you know, I mean, I can't imagine like, you know, air data computers or something like that. You can just power up and, you know, you're good to go, you know, or hydraulic systems. Like you do the, the rebirthing procedure must be amazing. Yeah. The systems checks were, were long, very, very long. I mean, all the way down to checking, (laughs) uh, a funny little thing that happened. We were in the cockpit one day and we were checking a bunch of different things. And this, this cockpit looks like the Millennium Falcon. And it's like, it's like the greatest technology from the mid seventies, you know, it's circuit breakers everywhere and steam gauges, you know? (laughs) And, uh, at one point we're just running a check on all of the, you know, looking at the distance measuring equipment and, and, uh, some of the other stuff. And at one point, one of the, one of the things on the checklist was the, uh, the compass, you know, it's just a regular, compass like you might find on the on the dashboard of your grandpa's toyota you know and we're sitting there and and we're looking at it we're trying to figure out if it's correct and it goes quiet and uh we're all sitting there and then finally it becomes clear what the four of us are doing these four four people who who work at edwards air force base and we're in the middle of texas and we're all looking around for a mountain to get our bearings because that's <laughs> that's what you do at, at edwards you go oh, well there's there's this mountain and you know that's that's where we are and none of us could find it we finally somebody broke out some somebody had to run down and find a compass you know because we didn't have them on our cell phones yet so so you said the cockpit was like the morning of falcon did you also have to uh whack the control panel with your fist too <laughs> Every now and again, uh, you know the the thought occurred to me from time to time. <laughs> you guys would have gone crazy in there, the electricals, because there was some ground looping. There was all kinds of weird stuff happening in there in the early days. We had to finally go in there and just get uh, get all the wires straightened out and figure out where it was because there were some non-standard ground planes or something. Because some of those some of those instruments just never read right. It sounds like you've had to acquire quite a few cross-disciplinary skills if you're dealing with with, uh, the electronics as well as, you know, mechanical, hydraulics. Yeah, I think a flight test engineer. I heard somebody describe uh, design engineers this way, and I thought this is how flight test and ops engineers work. And basically, uh, you become a temporary expert. You know, you become (laughs) the guy who has figured out what the problem is, and then your job is to go find somebody who's smart enough to actually fix it, you know. Right. (laughs) Um, but you know, even though you didn't fix it, then you're still on the hook for it years down the road. That's exactly right. It's, yeah. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> um, so yeah, we got it flying and, uh, uh, did three quick flights in, uh, Waco and cleared the envelope enough to fly it to, uh, to Edwards. And then we, um, and then we did some, some, some flight testing before we got the door system working. We got, we did some flutter testing. We did some, uh, some, uh, closed door performance testing and, made sure we had a good safe airplane this is after we got more instrumentation on it mm-hmm. um and then we put it down and uh, modified the door so it would open in in flight and then uh we went through and then we did the big open door flight testing which was a lot of work um and then uh and then uh in the middle of 2000 i want to say 2010 yeah it was middle of 2010 we got our first we did what we called the first light flight, which was uh, flying the first time we did an operational flight with scientists on board and opened the door and got a look at Jupiter and uh, closed the door, came home and called it success and then finished the flight test. And then it became a, an operational program. Well, it went into limited operations for, for several years and it became operational in 2014, I think it was declared operational. Wow. 
And so my job transitioned in the middle of, of all of that to being the operations manager and, and, and a lot of my work towards the end, towards that period while in the middle of the flight test program, which included flying on board, mm-hmm. um, including, uh, by the way, uh, you haven't lived until you've done negative G's in the 747. It's a, it's a very <laughs> strange experience. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's my bucket list. <laughs> as soon as I get the one off I'm off blocks in my yard, you know, I'll do the first test I run. Hey, I got a team for you because most of those guys are retired now. I'll send them over. Perfect. Um, I can pay them in pizza and beer. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, uh, one of the other things is that the, the science instruments, and so this is infrared astronomy, right? So the science instruments, um, they need they need – basically to have a lot of cryogens in them to keep them very, very cool, right? So you want <clears throat> if you wanna if you want to look at an infrared photon, you've got to you've got a uh you've got to have a very cold environment so there's not a lot of noise in the background. So so now I'm now I'm spend then I was spending a bunch of my time trying to qualify basically a can full of helium and, and nitrogen. Uh, to fly inside the pressure boundary of an airplane. So mm. it was kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> and, and learning how to interface working with scientists and engineers. And they're two totally different breeds, you know. So so it's it's an interesting group. Definitely. For being so similar, they certainly don't mix very well sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. This is not disparaging to scientists by any means, but 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 after several years of it, the only thing I can figure is that engineers are brought up being told you're going to play a team sport, and scientists, I think, in large part, are expected to publish and 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 do individual achievement, and and those two those two worlds don't always mesh very well, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing nothing against the people I worked with. I mean, we had an excellent chief scientist, and and. Uh, and the the big guy, uh, the big guy who basically invented infrared astronomy, Eric Becklin. No, no, very close names he and I, but not the same people at all. Uh, he's uh, <laughs> uh, just an incredible guy. And that actually, by the way, the first flight in Waco, I was sitting there at the flight party because this is the great thing about flight test. You have a flight, you have a flight party, and uh, we're at this we're at this bar and. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, I'm in my, what, early 30s and, and I've had kind of a weird career and I'm sitting there drinking a beer, talking to a friend of mine and, and one of the uh, flight engineers who's the guy who rides with the pilots and, and monitor systems on, on board. He comes over and he's like, well, you look around this room, you got a, you got an astronaut, you have like world-class scientists, you have like this really incredible group of people all laughing and drinking beer. It's just, uh, it's just surreal sometimes, you know. Neat. Sounds like the beginning of a joke too, you know. You got an astronaut, a scientist, <laughs> all sitting around at a bar. You know, beer is the thing that unites us. That's right. I'm drinking one right now. All right, <laughs> that's how we do it on this podcast. <laughs> have another. <laughs> so did you ever have any uh, close calls testing all these systems? Um, any near crashes? No, no near crashes. Besides the you know the plane that almost hit another plane. <laughs> no, no, nobody, nobody almost hit anybody. No near crashes, but, um, but, uh, it's, it's interesting. So with, with Sophia, with the door open, one of our fears early on was, was a, a door hanging up on landing. And, uh, because we hadn't, we hadn't proven that the system, you know, this telescope is, is very expensive and damaging it is basically end of program kind of, kind of, kind of concerns and landing with the door open 
you just don't know. You're you're down low, and you know you could hit something on the runway. There's any number of things that could happen, and so we we prepared for it and we thought about it. And the first few times uh, we opened the door, everything went without without any kind of problem. And then one day it hung up on us, and we had to, you know, you have to clear the gallery and you have to you have to go into your little emergency checklist and all this kind of stuff. And it struck me that it was the it was the third time that I'd been doing a flight test where I was at the mic and something had happened and it was the first time that it was the thing we had been planning for (laughs) it's always it's always something else it's always a hydraulic leak or uh one that i don't even want to talk about because it's so stupid no Um, yeah anything you plan for it's uh that's not what's gonna break there's there's no way and in fact at the at the control room at dryden it wasn't there at this time but they used to have a sign over the control room that said uh uh prepare for the unexpected and expect to be unprepared and it, I mean, that's, that's like probably the best thing you can put in that kind of environment. Cause you go in, you don't know, you know what you're supposed to see and you're just not ready for what happens when it, when it does start to go south. But luckily it's all been pretty low energy testing for me. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's not the rocket days, you know, in the, in the, in the breaking the sound barrier and all those dangerous days like it was. Stars tend to look real blurry when you shoot a plane that fast and try to take a picture of it. <laughs> Right. So, it, so at some point, you moved on from being a operations engineer to being a deputy director for flight operations. What, what in the world is that? Yeah, that was what I thought when I put in for it. So, um, uh, I will tell you it's a business that, card that wins you free lunches. That's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. Was that was an interesting move in my career, right? So, um, it's 2012. I've been doing this for about 10 years, and this is a pretty senior level position that usually goes to 20 year guys, that kind of thing. And and um, I had I had been encouraged to do it, to put in for it by um, uh. <laughs> By the uh, by, the psychologist at work. You can read into that whatever you want to read into it. And um, I was I was considering this is where this is this is a point where I was at I was at a crossroads in my career because Sophia had basically become operational and I was more of a test guy and I was feeling in I was feeling a little bit over my head with the with trying to operate the thing and it just wasn't my my thing. So this job came. I was considering you know, moving on, checking out private industry. I was trying, I was thinking about a lot of different things. And then this job came open and I had a few people encourage me to put in for it. So I did. And it was, this was my first real management job. You know, this is personnel management. I still get to keep engineering my title, but I didn't do any engineering. Um, and I was, I was sort of managing branch chiefs really. Uh, and my boss was amazing. I mean, he was, he was, a he had degrees from Stanford and MIT and the Air Force Academy. He had 40 years in the industry. He was a, a test pilot and a research pilot, and just just a solid, solid guy. But I uh, I did it for three years. I gave it what I would call an honest uh, <laughs> an honest uh, hack at it. But I was just I don't know. I was I, I got to a point where even my wife was telling me like, "What are you doing? You're 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 going crazy. You're 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 miserable all the time." And 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 this just isn't fulfilling to you, you know? So that's when I started. Right. I really, you know, this is one of those things where I had to, I had to sit down with my sister and I was like, I don't want to be dad. I don't want to like, you know, move to the woods and be a lumberjack. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I put the feelers out back here in, uh, in Maryland and, uh, one thing led to another and I got, I got back 
at Rotary Wing doing uh, doing flight test again, and it was there was a pay cut involved, and there was a drop in status, and my my business card, as you pointed out, Carmen, my business card isn't as impressive now as it was, but I'm definitely a lot happier. <laughs> yeah, that's what counts. And was the lessening of happiness was that a matter of just having been pulled away from the technical into the political, or were there other managerial issues at work here? Uh, I think I think. I think it's the just being pulled away from technical. I actually like so I joked to somebody once, like you know, oh yeah, I remember I remember spending all this time in differential equations in college, like daydreaming about the day I can talk about the budget six days a week, you know, every you know. So, <laughs> do you have the right cover on your TPS reports? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, when you when you find out you're the guy pushing. Those kinds of things. And look, don't, don't get me wrong. This is not to bash on managers because it's a tough job and it's a stressful job. And there's very little for, at least for me, there's very little joy in it. You know, it's, but it's got to be done. And a, and a good manager is worth a lot. But, um, and I, I you know, <laughs> I, I think that I did okay. And I had some people when I left who I, who worked for me tell me that they, they were going to miss me. And they've told me that since then. And that's a little bit, nice but you know it's not worth uh, for me personally it wasn't worth uh, you know the stress and the and the and the worrying all the time right and and so since you left that position what are you doing now uh i'm back in rotary wing aero mechanics and i am a flight test engineer for the united states navy and i'm happy about it back <laughs> with helicopters and helicopters are where they where i started you know yeah that's truly full circle yeah, it really is. Um, so now I, uh, uh, I spend a lot of time writing test plans and writing reports and, and I still haven't figured out word formatting and it makes me crazy, but, but, uh, <laughs> but it is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I make a plan. I, I make a test plan. I run a test. I write a report and, uh, I keep my customer happy and I, I do it all over again. And it's, it's a good, it's good technical work and it's, it's a good customer and, you know, it's, it's fulfilling and I like it a lot. And I can see water out my window, which is a thing you can't see anywhere at Edwards Air Force Base. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, so, so when we uh, launched this episode, we talked a little bit about risk, about the fact yeah. that, that all of us as engineers have to take a, a certain amount of risk. And and I'm guessing that in your position, uh, you certainly have to do that. You're, you're trying to uh, decide uh, whether the the plane is, or in this case, the helicopter is is airworthy, uh, you know, whether it meets the technical specs, but you need to do it uh, such that you keep the pilot safe and the aircraft safe. Yeah, that's right, and and uh, and that I mean, I think risk has really kind of defined the career. Really, um, I remember the first time, and it was not long into my career. I remember the first time I had to sign the release for an aircraft. You know, and basically, you know, I'm not a PE, but uh, you're still putting your you're still putting your name there, saying, "Yeah, I did everything. I did everything I could." And it really it really makes you stop and think, like, you know, did I? And I mean, I'm you know, I'm pretty uh, pretty conscientious when I'm doing the job anyway. But but that moment where you have to sign a, a release and say, "Yes, the aircraft is configured. The test plan. You sign the test plan. You do all these things, and you say, "Yeah, you know, it's gonna this is gonna work, and we're gonna we're gonna send it out." And and then it goes a little further if. You know, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, one way to avoid risk is to not do anything at all. And that's, that's one of the, like, sort of the things we talk about a lot. 
in flight test is you can you can weld the hangar doors shut and that'll 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 get rid of risk but uh, you got to go out there and fly it and and if we don't do it we transfer that risk to to fleet pilots and they might be operating these things and be task saturated and then suddenly get to a point where they're doing something that we never tested and that's just not anything any of us ever want to have happen you know yeah so you know from an academic standpoint you know if you go look up the definition of risk it talks about that risks are future events that have an, an occurrence probability uh, and a potential for loss so if there's no there's no p- potential that they're going to occur they're not really a risk if there's no potential for loss it's not really a risk if it's something that's already occurred that's a known fact it's not really a risk <laughs> so we need it to be uh, future events to have a, a probability and to have a potential for loss I, I don't ever remember in my engineering uh, training anybody uh, getting too deep into a risk in that sense did anybody did, is that something that that in your career people have talked about directly or is yeah absolutely oh yeah. okay Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's basically the overriding conversation you have all the time. We have a matrix, and along one side of it is the is the severity of the event, uh, mm-hmm. all the way from could be uh, could be some some lost time or some lost money, all the way up to lose the aircraft. And then along the other along the other axis, you have the probability of occurrence, and you have obviously. As the probability and the severity go up, you get into a, a region where you really don't want to go. And um, so when you're looking at a test, you have to sit down, you have to start thinking, you know, uh, what what could go wrong. So, so we do, you know, we do safety working groups, we do test hazard analyses, we do, we do all these things. Um, now, when you look at the probability of occurrence, it's always got a number associated with it, like ten to the negative three, between ten to the negative three and ten to the negative sixth, say, is one of the one of the probabilities. It's it would be interesting <laughs> to to know how they came to those numbers because it's very very qualitative. Um, we look at we basically use words like is it is it remote is it likely you know is it likely to basically. The worst is it's likely to occur a lot, you know, and that could be a nuisance or it's likely to occur during, say, a test program or it's unlikely to occur or the possibility is remote or the possibility mm-hmm. is is basically what we would call, you know, so remote that we don't think about it, basically. But uh, but there's an art to it. I mean, you have to sit there and think about are there residual risks? And when you mitigate, you know, we the way our standard rule is. You can mitigate away the probability an event will happen, but you can't mitigate the severity. So if you start from the position that if an event, a specific event occurs, um, you lose the aircraft, all you can do from there is is mitigate, is is put in mitigations in place that remove, that, that lower the probability of that event happening, not lowering the consequence if it does happen. Mm-hmm. So that that happens in design and generally you know we're well beyond that by the time we're starting to uh to test things i'm not sure if that makes sense or not it, it certainly does i we as people as humans tend to be poor uh, predictors of risk absolutely so what you're saying about things being uh, at least getting a relative scale of more likely and less likely seems like a reasonable thing to do 
uh, since putting a direct number on it is difficult for us. Yeah. I annoy my wife with that all the time. We have a seven month old baby and, uh, and I start talking about, well, the risk of doing it this way and that way. And I think she thinks I'm a little <laughs> bit paranoid, but I'm just, I'm just going through my process. You know, the risk he bangs his head on the coffee table is, you know, less than 2%. <laughs> 10 to the negative six is what you're concerned yeah. with. Yeah, right, right. So uh, there was a guy uh, who used to run a radio show, at least in the Bay Area, and it may have been nationwide, a guy, uh, Dr. Dean Adell. Back in the 90s, I used to listen to him while I was doing homework. And uh, mm-hmm. he, he talked about how bad we are at at uh, at, at, uh, at judging risk. And one of, his little, one of his little analogies he used that I always laugh at is, you drive to the health food store, but you don't put a seatbelt on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So if... if uh Again, from the you know sort of the academic standpoint, if they talk about risk mitigation, you've identified the risk, you know what it is, you've you've assessed it, you've decided this is important enough to do something about. You know the, the methods they list are well, you can ex- you can accept the risk and say well that's that's good enough, or you can avoid the risk, or you know basically <laughs> weld the weld the hangar door shut. Yeah, right, right. Or or you can reduce the risk, uh, or you can transfer the risk. Right. So. From a more practical, how does this boil out? Is, is it- so yeah, so this is so. I've seen these. I've taken training that tell me these things too, right? But um, I really only I only see a few of these being used. But uh, acceptance is a strategy. Uh, accepting a risk is a strategy, but it takes a lot of trust in an organization. So when a project manager says, "I accept that risk," you know can he or she really accept that risk and what does it mean to accept that risk um i've seen i've been involved in conversations where i've heard a project manager tell an engineer that they'll accept the risk and i knew from the context of the of the conversation that what the project manager was really saying was i don't believe that's really a risk and those are two very different statements and you have to be really clear when you say i accept that risk i mean who are you accepting it for? Are you putting are you putting somebody else at risk? You know, you have to be very careful with that. But in, a, in an environment where there is trust and good communications, sometimes as an engineer, if you're told by a by a reasonable authority that they're accepting a risk, it's time to say, okay, you know, let them be the adult and accept that risk and move on because they because they do they are the ones that are going to pay if it doesn't if it doesn't come to you know if it doesn't work out. Um, uh, risk avoidance to me looks in practice always like risk transfer. If I avoid the risk and I'm testing something that I'm going to operate that somebody else is going to operate, it really feels to me like we're pushing, you know, like we're pushing that risk off to the operator. Well, again, it's because no one's willing to to weld the hangar doors, right? <laughs> yeah, right, what, right. What they mean is we're going to avoid the risk. What they mean is is we're we're going still going to operate the system. We just yeah. we we don't want to deal with it. Yeah, right, right. So protection is would be design. I think. I think. Uh, you know, I'm not really sure. I always think of reduction, but I always think of reduction of probability, and that's really where we go always. Either either acceptance or or reduction of probability is is in my experience is where we go. Sometimes you will avoid a risk. Sometimes you'll look at a test and say, "I'm not going to get enough information out of this test to make it worth it," or right. or the or the risk to somebody else. And, it, and this, this is when it becomes a transfer. The risk to the fleet operator that this thing goes wonky is is very small, but the test I have to perform might be very dangerous. You know, but that's that would I I can't I can't think of any examples of that in my career. Yeah. 
would you say it's similar how they don't do crash testing on planes like uh, like they do with cars? Yeah. <laughs> it's really easy to build a hundred cars and crash them. Yeah, the less easy to do that with a plane. Yeah, very expensive. And actually, you bring up a good point because there's two kinds of risk, right? There's 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 risk, physical risk, risk to the asset, or risk to people, or uh, or other assets or property. And then there's programmatic risks, mm-hmm. which is if I do this, my entire company goes broke. You know, um, or we take the fleet out of service for the next six months while we recall something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you mentioned something there, Eric, about a a test, which uh, reminds me that uh, my experience has been that when people get fired up about, well, we, we have to look at, you know, all the risks and, and uh, start to do this analysis that it gets in, in some systems. I'm, I trust that yours is a little different. There's one massive push through and everything gets looked at and then it goes away. And, you know, systems evolve, systems change, maintenance has to be done. And, and so there's a need to keep going back and looking at the risk because six months and six years down the line, there will be new risks to the system based on the environment, and the conditions that the system is envir- uh, operating in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's why organizations like the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine Corps have people doing tests on platforms that are already operating because as they're operating, you start to find you start to find issues with it. The airlines do this too. You know, you start to find issues. You tell the, uh, you tell, you tell the appropriate people, they start to look at it to see if they have trends. If they have trends, they start to work on, on fixes. And sometimes in between the trends and the fixes is the test that happens to get the real data to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's where service bulletins and airworthiness directives and those kinds of things come from. Right. Yeah, aviation takes uh, safety a little more seriously than some other fields. Yeah, it really does, and and I I would argue that it does it very very well, so well that other you know certainly other um, other organizations, including hospitals, have looked into it. Uh, you know the the book uh, checklist checklist manifesto goes into this about mm-hmm. how you know it used to be you know don't don't uh, don't bother that guy. He's a professional. He'll figure it out to, you know what? We can count the number of syringes and sponges in the room. There's, you know, that's not, that's not looking down our nose at the guy. Right. It's, it's trying to avoid the lawsuit when somebody gets sewed up with the, uh, the sponge inside. Right. Right. Well, Eric, we should, uh, probably wrap this up and let you go on, uh, get on with your evening. Uh, oh. so you've, you've had a fairly atypical path into engineering, but a, <laughs> but if, it sounds like a fairly interesting engineering career. Any any advice you might have for those who who think they're sort of outside the the typical uh, path of going from high school directly into college, uh, directly into a career? Yeah, I mean, if you want it, just do it. I know that sounds really really cliche, but but figure out a way and and do it because it's it's worth it in the end. Uh, really, honestly, um, and there's going to be there's going to be times along the way that you don't think it's worth it, and certainly a degree in engineering is not an easy thing to do, but. If that's what you want, you know, you can make it happen if you, if you, if you try. It also sounds like it helps to have your face light up like a Christmas tree in a room full of helicopters. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think to some extent, you know, passion goes a long way, right? I mean, if you're, who, who would you rather work around? Somebody who's excited to be there or somebody who's just drawing a paycheck and irritable all the time? We can't wait till the clock turns five. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
So Eric, if our listeners might have uh, questions and, and wish to get a hold of you, is there any place we can direct them? Yeah, you've got my uh, email on your uh, notes there, and uh, it looked like you got my uh, LinkedIn. Those are probably the two best ways. I have a total of two Twitter followers, and I have one tweet, <laughs> and one of the Twitter followers is my wife, so there's nothing interesting <laughs> happening there. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, we'd be happy to provide it. We could probably get you up to over a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, I'll, I'll send it to you an email, and you can throw it in the show notes. Oh, man. Can, right. we, can we start putting that in our uh, <clears throat> our thing to send out to guests? We'll, you know, sex couple of your Twitter followers. <laughs> there you, you go. Be careful about that. we got to make sure we get people with, like, one follower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's easier to get a 600% increase. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you feel motivated to follow Eric on Twitter, his handle is at Eric, E-R-I-C, N is in Navy, Becker, B-E-C-K-E-R. Well, Eric, thank you so very, very much for uh, joining us this evening and, and uh, sharing some of your experiences. And uh, I, I know a lot more now about what a test flight engineer, what is a flight test engineer flight actually test engineer. does. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, I enjoyed it. And I, I really like your studio. <laughs> <laughs> looks a lot like my office at home. Right. Do, do, you, do you enjoy the artwork we have hanging around the, uh, on the wall? Yeah, it's great. We, we spend extra for that. <laughs> sweet, sweet podcasting money. <laughs> Grace, Grace, take 10000 in cash. <laughs> All right, Eric. Well, we'll let you go. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. See you later. Bye, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Eric. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>